0: Good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 8, we're still in the same chapter, so uh, you should be able to find it by now. That's why I opened up to that same spot over and over and over. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. As we continue where we left off last week, last week, uh, as many of you will know, I only got through one point. So this week we're going to finish the uh, thought that I had last week. But as you're turning there, let me go and make you aware of something. This Wednesday night... Everything is back, so all the kids' ministries are back, youth ministries are back, uh, adult and Bible studies are back, all those fun things, and if that doesn't get you excited, Chick-fil-A sandwiches will be back this Wednesday night, so as you come in, we'll grab a Chick-fil-A sandwich and head off to learn about Jesus, so they kind of go hand in hand, am I right? Oh, maybe, <laughs> all right, uh, also out in the lobby, you'll see that there are community groups to sign up for, let me, if, if I could explain this to you, community groups are eight weeks That we're going to spend in homes where we go through the book of James together. So it's eight Sunday nights starting in September and going through the majority of October. So we will do eight weeks in homes studying James together. So if you would like more information about that, you can ask me, but there are sign-up sheets out there and it is... It is pretty much, you can go to whatever house is closest to you or however you want to work that out. So if you have questions or need any assistance in that, find me in the lobby and I'll I'll help you with that. So community groups are coming back. So if you're there, last week we looked at this overarching thought that uh, we look at salvation as putting us on a path. It is God's work and he's putting us on a path that there's justification, sanctification, and then glorification. And we see all of these happening in This chapter, Romans chapter 8, so as you just sang, you sang about the justification, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that is the justification, you've you've been declared just because of the blood of the Lamb. Sanctification is then the process that we go through, where he is molding us and making us more into the image of his Son, meaning that we no longer walk in the flesh, but we walk in the Spirit. We saw that in this chapter as well. And now we're reaching the end where there is glorification, where we have this hope, a hopeful anticipation of what is to come, that He will make all things right, and He will wipe away every tear. And so we are leading in that. So how do, you, how do you know that you are saved? Well, salvation sets you on a path that doesn't necessarily save you from current sufferings. So one of the things that causes people to walk away from their faith is the suffering that we have to endure. How could a loving God allow this to happen? Why would my family have to face this situation? Why, why, why are these things happening? Because we see suffering through different lenses. So the first one is by comparison. We look at suffering through comparison. We can't even compare what we're going through right now to the future glory that awaits. And so we, in comparison, see this as a momentary uh, time of suffering, but there is an eternal eternity of glorification that awaits us. So it far outweighs what we're going through now. We also look at it through the lens of creation. Creation, we see the whole world has been subjected to the curse of sin, and so it is now turning in on itself, and everything is deteriorating, everything is dying, and this is the curse that we live in. And though we are saved, we're not, we're not freed yet from this body of death where we are, we are more inclined to turn in on ourselves. And so as much food as we eat, as much energy, as much exercising as we do, unfortunately, we're all getting older, right? That's just kind of how it works. That's the curse that we're under. And so now we look at it through the suffering of Christ. The lens of suffering through the lens of Christ. That Christ came. He lived in the flesh. He subjected himself to the curse so that he would take upon himself the wrath of God, suffer in our place, so that though we suffer in this world, we do not have the wrath of God that we will have to suffer in all eternity. Amen? So, that was the, I could have done it a lot faster last week now that I've just done this intro, but we didn't. So, this week we look at this hope that we have as we get on this path. So I'm going to reread some of these verses that we read last week, picking up in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about your work on our behalf, through your son Jesus Christ, that we have salvation. We thank you for the path that you've placed us on. Though there's suffering in this world, we have a, an anticipated hope to be with you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're coming again. We thank you that you're going to make all things right. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit that intercedes for us. We pray now that you would speak to us through your word. Lead us and guide us in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is salvation sets you on a path of hope-filled living in spite of your suffering. There's hope-filled living in spite of suffering. Now, hope, as we often refer to it, is, is wishful thinking in our in our minds, right? We think man, I really hope this works out. So yesterday, my family, my, my brother-in-law in from Japan, and we decided it would be a great idea to float down the Hiawasi River, right? And so in my mind, I had this hopeful anticipation that it was going to be a restful float down. I, was, I even said on the way down, man, I hope it's so relaxing that I can take a nap on the float while going down the river. I have lived here for 44 years of my life. And I was not aware that the rapids were as strong as they are on the Hiawassee River. And so I had this hopeful anticipation that it wouldn't rain, and it did. I had this hopeful anticipation that I wouldn't get flipped out of the boat, which I did, and would not go swimming with the fishes, but I did. So that is hopeful thinking. Well, when we talk about hope, it's not that. When we talk about the scriptural basis of hope, the biblical understanding of hope, it is a confident anticipation And confident assurance. So, when we talk about hope in this chapter, we're talking about I have this confident anticipation that He is making all things right, that He's working all things out for the good. There's a confident anticipation and a confident assurance that all of these things will work out in the end. So, I have this confidence in Christ and what He has done on my behalf. So, faith is the instrument of our salvation, but hope becomes the condition of our salvation. If you are in Christ, you are living with hope today. Amen? This is what we've been singing about. There's a hope that all my sins are forgiven. There's a hope that one day he will make everything right. I have this hopeful anticipation and hopeful confidence that these things will come to pass. And not only that, he's given us his spirit. So if we place our hope in anything other than Christ, anything other than God himself, we will waver. We will falter. So if we hope in our abilities will fail. Because we will let ourselves down. If we hope in our feelings, we will falter. Because our feelings will change based on the circumstances of life. And if we hope in good circumstances, we will always be let down because the next bad thing is around the corner. But if we hope in Christ, our faith will not crumble. If we hope in what his word says, we can stand firm. And he gives us his spirit to then help us in this hoping, right? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have a hope that is an assurance and an anticipation because of the down payment of the Spirit that we have received, who is working on our behalf. Have you ever been so distraught by the sufferings that you're going through, and the circumstances that you're going through, and the feelings that you're having, that you didn't even know what to say to God? There are moments where we're on the path of salvation, but yet we're not excluded from sufferings, yet there is a hope-filled assurance that God is working out things on our behalf. And so in those moments... The Spirit prays, intercedes for us. So the first thing that we have hope in is the work of the Spirit is the Spirit prays for us. Prayer is a beautiful communion with God. You pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you engage in prayer, as we had a moment of prayer today, you're engaging with communion with God. What an intimate, beautiful thing. So therefore, prayer can't be just a routine, it can't be just some ritual that we do. It can't be the same words that we recite over and over and over. It has to be a communion that happens in a relationship with God because we pray to the Father through the Son by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life who is then praying for us with groans too deep for words. Douglas Moo puts it this way, There is one in heaven, the Son of God, who intercedes on our behalf, defending us, From all charges that might be brought against us, guaranteeing salvation in the day of judgment. That is a beautiful thought that there is one who sits on a throne interceding for us right now that we are not held accountable for the sins in our life because we are in Christ. But there is also, Paul asserts in these verses, an intercessor in the heart, the Spirit of God, who effectively prays to the Father on our behalf throughout the difficulties and uncertainties of our lives here on earth. Not only do we have the Son interceding for us, but we've been given a Spirit. The Spirit of God interceding for us when we are suffering. When we are at a loss for words, the Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit not only prays, but He searches our hearts. Number two, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, would say it this way, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Spirit not only prays for us, the Spirit is searching us. If you are a believer in Christ, let me tell you something, you've been given the Spirit, and the Spirit knows every detail. He knows what's happening in your heart. He knows what's happening in your mind. He knows your intentions. He knows the thoughts that are going through them. He knows because there's an intimate relationship that is taking place where he has given you his spirit. This should bring hope to the believer. That I am fully exposed and not a thing is hidden and yet I am accepted and loved through Jesus Christ. You see intimacy with God is more intentional in the word of God. Because when we are suffering and when we're going through sanctification and when we're going through difficulties, God speaks to us through His Word. It is through His Word that the Spirit will illuminate truths that you may have read a thousand times, but this time I needed this. How timely was this verse today when I needed it the most? Because the Spirit is now searching you and knows you, and He is transforming you from the inside out. He's interceding for you he intercedes according to the will of God. What a beautiful thought that he is he's helping us in our frustrations. Our hope is in the work of the spirit who takes our groanings, our frustrations, our feelings and he translates them into prayers which work in accordance to the will of God. This is a remarkable truth that even when you lack the words to say that there is a spirit that has been given to you, that prays for you, that searches you, knows what your intentions are, and then takes your feelings and your frustrations, and he, he filters them for you into the will of God. Have you ever prayed something and that prayer didn't come, come to pass the way that you prayed it, but yet what God did on the other end of that was far greater than you could have ever hoped for? It's because he took what you were praying and He said, let me filter that for you because I know exactly what you really need right now. What a beautiful hope. A hope-filled assurance that the Spirit is working in us and he's working all things for the good of those who love him. All right, so here we are. Here's the verse. Your coffee cup verse, right? You might have drank out of it this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Wow. Wow let's just take it for those who love god let's just start right there he doesn't say for those who believe in god he doesn't say that those who love god let me ask you do you love god it's a deep question really if you love god for who he is then you'll make a commitment to him that is willing to endure suffering and difficulty But if you simply love God for what he does for you, then you might be using him. And when suffering comes, you're more apt to abandon him. I'm reminded of Simon Peter. Simon Peter, who was asked three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? As he's restoring Peter back after he had ran and abandoned Christ as he was going to the cross. When they had finished breakfast, this is in John 21, 15 through 17, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Oh, the Spirit knows everything. And though my actions may sometimes say otherwise, God, you you know I love you for who you are not just for what I get. Do you love me? You see, Peter, within a few weeks, stands before a crowd and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. This is in Acts chapter 2. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was able to say and preach the good news and endure suffering because he loved God. And he was working all things out. God uses the sufferings and the sins of this world to reveal the supremacy of his glory and his grace he even used the sufferings of his son to bring about our salvation. What a remarkable thought. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. All things work together for good. God is using all things. I'm going to say all things a couple of times because it's hard for us to grasp that all things are under his control. God is using all things and working all things according to his will. Was He working? All things. Really? All things? All things? I mean, you start to think about all things, and that's that's a dangerous path of the mind, right? All things. All things really means all things, as Tim Keller puts it. So it includes even our backsliding and our sin. Now, sin is always bad, always a terrible thing, and we will always live out to regret its painful consequences in our lives. But God is so great that He weaves it into our ultimate good. He can use even our sins and failures to humble us and teach us a right view of ourselves and a greater appreciation of Christ. He even works through sin to save his people. This does not excuse our sin, but it does cause us to look for how God is working through it. All things. This reminds me of the prodigal son. You're familiar with the story Jesus told of the prodigal son? How the son was in the house, and yet he took all of his, his inheritance and he decided, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to take my inheritance, and I'm going to go spend it on everything I'm not, gonna, I'm not supposed to spend it on. And when he had squandered every bit of that, he found himself sitting in a pig pen, and he thought, oh, I'm going to go home. I'm covered in filth. I have no excuse for what I've done. And as he made his way back home, the father saw him at a far distance and took off running towards him. And when he got to him, he wrapped his arms around him, he put a robe on him, he put a ring on his finger, and he killed a fatted calf and said, let's party. My son has returned. All things. He works out all things. Don't you think that the prodigal son had a deeper love and appreciation for the father after the fall? And that's the story of all all of us. That once we really see how horrible the sin is in our life and we return to the Father in repentance, we have a deeper appreciation for his love, grace, and mercy. He works out all things. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what a wonderful thing it is that even our defeats can be turned in turned for our good. God takes hold of this thing and he uses it in a way that brings us nearer to himself and gives us a knowledge of himself that we otherwise would have never had this term all things really must be taken in all its fullness not even accepting sin or falling back into backslidden condition it's difficult for us to even fathom the idea that god is sovereignly in control of all things that there is never a moment that god is not in control nothing sneaks past his providential authority if you believe in a sovereign god then you believe that god is in control and so nothing gets past him. As R.C. Sproul would put it, God orders his providences so that not to cancel out secondary causes. He does not annihilate the actions of human will which are undertaken freely. He uses all things. What a remarkable thought. So how do we reconcile this? Well, we look at Scripture and you see Joseph. You remember Joseph in Genesis? Joseph suffered an attack from his jealous brothers because his coat was way cooler than theirs. He had the coat of men in color? No? Okay. Well, Joseph had a coat that was way cooler than his brothers, and they got mad, and they threw him in a pit. So um, that's, that's not really how it reads, but close. So he was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison, and through the providential will of God, he was elevated to a position of authority in Egypt. All of this is taking place. That when a famine hit the land, he found himself face to face with the same brothers who had treated him so badly. And his response was, you might be familiar with this, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Whoa. That God is working out all things. Joseph's brothers intentionally sinned and went against the will of God but despite their intentions and willful act of sin, God was sovereignly involved in the whole thing, working it out for his divine purpose. That's a big God. Doesn't that give you hope? What about Job? Job. Not one horrible thing that happened to Job was outside of God's sovereign authority. He lost his possessions, his children, his health. None of these evils were from God, but rather the enemy who came to kill and to steal and destroy, but God used the catastrophe that took place in his life for a greater purpose. What about Adam and Eve? God knew what Adam and Eve were going to do before the fall. He knew before he created them what he was getting himself into. It didn't take him by surprise as he walked through the garden that day and was like, where are they? Because they were hiding. He chose not to stop them from sinning, He chose not to shut the mouth of the serpent. He chose not to impose a limitation upon creation, but to use the insufficiencies of the flesh to illuminate his providential sovereignty, his just authority, and his holy, glorious love, grace, and mercy towards the sinner. I can tell you're receiving all of this deep information today. God used the intentional sins of Adam and Eve to reveal a purpose of his son, and to reveal the salvation that we need through his son. So as Sinclair Ferguson would say, there is nothing that takes our God by surprise. There is nothing that takes place outside of his superintendence and watch care, and there is nothing that can ever happen that can distort or destroy his eternal purposes for his people, nothing whatsoever. That is hope-filled assurance in the midst of suffering, as Paul would say in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, there it is, all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What hope we have in Christ. To sum up this thought, I'm going to read a quote from Robert Haldane. And he says this, even the sins of believers work for their good, not from the nature of sin, but by the goodness and the power of him who brings light out of darkness. Everywhere in scripture we read of the great evil of sin, everywhere we receive the most solemn warning against its commission, and everywhere we hear also the chastisement it brings, even upon those who are rescued from its finally condemning power. It is not sin then. In itself, that works, the good. But God, who overrules its effects to his children, shows them by means of it what it is in their hearts, as well as their entire dependence on him and the necessity of walking with him more closely. Their falls lead them to humiliation, to the acknowledgement of their weaknesses and depravity, to prayer for the guidance of the overpowering influence of the Holy Spirit, to vigilance and caution against all carnal security, and to reconcile on that righteousness provided for their appearance before God. God can work all things, and there's a moment when sin enters the life of those who love God, and that sin brings you to a point of humiliation and acknowledgement of your weakness, of your depravity, of your dependence, and it lead you to a point where you cry out for guidance and help from the Holy Spirit that he has given you. Oh, he can work out all things for good. We have a hope. We have an anticipated assurance that he is working out all things, even secondary causes and willful, sinful acts of the creatures, even the devastation of creation. Through its groaning, he's working all things out to fulfill his purpose. So we have a hope-filled purpose. Number two, salvation sets you on a path of transformation that will culminate in glorification. So we are set on a path for those who are called according to his purpose. You are set on a path. You are called according to a purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has a sovereign, salvific purpose in the midst of our suffering. Everything is working together so that we will, here it is, be conformed to the likeness of his son. So why suffering? Why is he working all things to the good for those who love God? The answer is in verse 29 and 30, because... Because this is called the golden chain of salvation. This is a golden chain of salvation that is connected link after link after link after link. And if you were Mr. T, you would wear it proudly, right? This is a gold chain that you want to wear. That was for everyone over 40. Kids are like, who's Mr. T? You're missing out. So let's take this golden chain. Number one, God foreknew. Foreknew. The word there means to set his love on. Foreknew. 1 Corinthians 8.3 But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Known by God. If you love God, I asked you the question, do you love God? You're known by God. Genesis 4.1, we see that the word know can be far deeper than just an intellectual understanding For Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. He didn't just, yeah, I know her. (laughs) No, I won't explain it. He knew her, right? Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, there's the word, knew, You Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, God is working out all things, but he's working out all things for those who love God. It's not a universal truth for all people, because if you don't know God, it's not working out to your advantage in the end. He knew Israel, chose Israel. Amos 3, 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. No. Psalm 1, 5 through 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, it's not just talking about the fact that God knows all people with a general understanding, but there is a specific foreknown. Formerly, Galatians four eight or nine. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Known by God, He has set His affection on you. This is how it begins in the life and the path of salvation. Foreknown. You've sang it. We sing a song here called uh, All I Have is Christ. And you, the first, first verse, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Foreknown. Second, predestined. Everybody's getting a little. Here we go. Everybody's getting a little uneasy. Love of God is set, is set upon a sinner, and it's the first action in God's plan of salvation. Predestinate, predestined is next. He planned a glorious destination for you. This is what this verse means. Please do not get squirmy or uncomfortable because Calvin did not invent this term. It's in the Bible. In fact, we're talking about predestined for something as it refers to these verses. So he's talking about the appointed destination for you is to be conformed into the image of his son. That's what this is talking about. As John Piper would say, the aim of predestination as it relates to our good is that we are appointed to share in the very glory of the risen Christ both morally in blameless righteousness and physically in the resurrection body of glory like his. This destiny is the glorification of verse 30. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And it is underway right now in all the children of God as we look into the face of Christ in the gospel and are changed from one degree of glory to another by the power of the Spirit. He foreknew and he set you on a path. He has a plan for you. He predestined and now he calls. God called. Many theologians call this an effectual calling. It is the grace-filled invitation that sovereignly leads to salvation. As someone who has been foreloved, foreknown, predestined for the path, and conformed to the image of the Son, there will be a moment of calling. Your being called by God is the conversion of your regeneration. The moment of faith that regenerates your heart from stone to flesh. There's a moment when those who are called will be caught. Man, what a beautiful thought that those who are called will be caught, like being fishers of men. If there are so many fish to be called, then I better go cast my nets to see how many can be caught. That's the work of the church. As Charles Spurgeon said it, I do not doubt that the Lord has settled concerning every one of his elect the exact time when they shall pass from death into life, the precise instrumentality by which they shall be converted, the exact word that shall strike with power on their mind, the period of conviction which they shall undergo, and the, in- the instant when they shall burst into the joyful liberty of a simple faith in Christ. It is all settled, all arranged, and predetermined in the divine purpose. If the very hairs of your head are all numbered, much more the circumstances the most important of all events which can occur to us. The foreordination of God in no degree interferes with the responsibility of man. I have often been asked by persons to reconcile the two truths. My only reply is, they need no reconciliation for they never fell out. Why should I try to reconcile two friends? The two facts are parallel lines. I cannot make them unite, but you cannot make them cross either. So many people try to make these theological truths cross, and it has been an argument for centuries. But let me just tell you, God is sovereignly in control, working out all things, and his path of salvation is his doing. Praise God when you, when you get caught. Praise God for the moment that you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that if you have not had that moment of your life where though you've known all this stuff about God, that you got caught by him and that that one word from his word came to you and penetrated your heart and convicted you to a point where you confessed your sin, you repented of who you'd been and you put your full faith in him. That's the moment. I'm excited about that moment. And I pray that God would do that in your heart today. As 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 8-9 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. If you've been called, you've been caught, and you have a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There is a purpose in your life, and here's what happens. God justified. At the very moment that you were called and caught, you were saved by grace through faith and not by works. At that moment, there was a declaration by God on your behalf that you, a repentant sinner, that all of your sins would be forgiven. You would be acquitted of all wrong. The wrath of God's judgment of sin would be removed from you and you would stand righteous before God. That means that at that moment that you, were, you believed and repented, God announced Something has been taken from you and something has been given to you. Your past, your present, and your future sins have all been removed and the righteousness of God has now been imputed to you. Justified. This is the path of salvation. Glorified. Notice, it's in past tense. You know why? Because you have a hopeful assurance that if God is doing all of these things then you can take that to the bank. One day, it'll all be made right, glorified. Justification is so definite and so eternal that our glorification is certain. It is as if it has already taken place. It is an already, not yet. So this is the viewpoint of the believer. The believer looks back and says, man, God has been working all things out for my good. And though I'm going through suffering and though I have all these trials and though I I have issues, and though I fall, and though there's sins in my life, he's working out all things, and he's leading me more and more along this path. For those who are not believers, they can look and say, "I want to be caught. I want to surrender my life to him." So I'm going to close with this question. Do you have a hope-filled assurance of your salvation? Not that you know God. Has there been a moment in your life that he caught you, that you surrendered, that you repented, that you said, I'm all yours? If that has not happened in your life, then I pray that today you would say a simple prayer of repentance and faith.